Once more, we open the pod bay doors and let slip the dogs of film geekery. Sorry, I'm mixing metaphors there. Uh, it is in this uh, strange space that I, Jared Walker, and my co-host, Damo Porobka, hello, discuss all things film, at least all things film that interest us. Yes. It's a very yes, self-centered film space. Anyway, Damo, welcome. Good, good day to you, sir. Thank you, sir. How are you? I am terrific. <laughs> terrific is good. <laughs> terrific is good. Yeah. Well, today we are actually going to discuss two disparate films. Yeah, very different, I think. I think they're very good examples of our own particular film tastes. In general, uh, what have you been watching lately? Well, I went to Melbourne, so time's been short, but Mm. I am up to date with Mandalorian Episode 3. Mandalorian Episode 3 was strong. It was indeed strong. There's a lot in it. There was a lot in it. And again, dialogue free in mm, many parts. It had a really spare, stripped back kind of style in terms of its uh in terms of its script it wasn't too wordy no and uh there was a lot of uh very spaghetti westerny action and also a little tip of the hat to john woo to hard boiled i like the uh the scene at the end the the i don't want to give away stuff you know oh. with all the with all the shooty shooty. Yes, that's that's all, it, the, yes. all the uh, double <laughs> double think, gun shooty. They can't shooty. see me miming, can yes, they? Yeah, oh, they're listening. That sort of John Woo style, uh, you know, flying through the air with two glocks whilst pigeons fly around you in the uh, smoke <laughs> in slow motion. Yes, maybe nothing so so exaggerated, but I should say, directed by Deborah Chow, first female director of a live action Star Wars. That's uh, a good effort then. Mm. She did a good job. Because it was. It was good. Because I was wondering whether it was the same as the previous two. Dave, what's his face? That's right. I believe the previous two. Dave, what's his face? (laughs) Dave Filoni directed the first one. Jared, Um, fill in the blanks, Damo. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I I have to say, uh, Deborah Chow did a good job. I listened to an interview with her and Mm -hmm. she talked about um, being raised on Hong Kong action films and that it was a very deliberate, hard-boiled reference. There you go. Baby Yoda in arm as he he goes through and canes loads of uh, stormtroopers. Yeah, it was a fantastic sequence. It was a good episode. And it was a very and good I episode. I am actually liking the one episode a week thing. I think that's good. It gives you that anticipation and what? you can think over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I've I'm gonna go home later tonight and watch it again because mm. I like to have a couple of views. I think it's definitely worth watching those three because they, they it makes a little movie length kind of. That's uh, true. I could go back story. to the start, couldn't I? Yeah. I think it's it's interesting because some episodes feel, at least in those first three, the second one does feel quite strange because it's it's quite wordless. It is sort of just set pieces. Yeah. Um, especially the sort of battle with the big hairy sort of rhino beast. And then you realize when, once you watch the third one, yeah, it really does have a payoff and a conclusion. Like they've kind of planned three little chunks. You put them together. I'm intrigued to see where we go next as mm. well. I think um, I think where we go next is going to be quite interesting. So yeah, I should say yeah, Dave Filoni directed the first one. Rick Famuyiwa directed the second one, um, and Deborah Chow the third. And they're all written by John Favreau. Favs. Favs. Um, and I believe Bryce Dallas Howard directs the next one. Ron's daughter. Ah, mm. she'll do a better job than Solo, though, won't she? Yeah. Oh, poor old Ron. I think he was given a bit of a poison chalice with that. It film. wasn't an easy thing to step into. It's the only one I don't even I don't even own that one. Mm. I've got every other film, multiple copies of all the others. It, it, How do it, you make it so boring? Yeah, look, I I don't think 
I don't, I, it was almost, uh, it sounds awful to say this, but it was kind of destined to fail because from it was the just outset, Star Wars overload at yeah. that point as well. Exhaustion, brand exhaustion. Yeah. And, and, and the CEO, Disney CEO, Bob Iger has actually talked about that. It's apparently he sort of blames himself, doesn't mm-hmm. sort of, he puts the blame on himself and the board because I think they were pushing to whip the Star Wars horse as hard as they possibly could. Well, they're going to make their $4 billion back or whatever yeah. they paid. I what did they pay? $700 I billion. think it was like four point, was it 4.3, something like that, 4.2. And um, I think they were, the pressure was on. Uh, for the Disney board and shareholders, they wanted them to eke as much value out of the Star Wars brand as possible. But so, you do need to be careful because even hardcore Star Wars fans can react well. Yeah, well, as we found out, you know, they reacted with a lot of volatility. Yeah. Um, they seem to react with a lot of volatility towards anything that happens, really. Um, and uh, it's a little frustrating because I, I personally think that when it comes to fandom, and I would consider myself a, not a diehard Star Wars fan, but a pretty big one, had a big impact on me. But I think that the fact that you see them when you're a kid, yes, and so it shapes the way you actually view it when you're an adult. And I don't think it can ever possibly live up to how it was when you're a kid. It, it can never live up to it. And so that's why every generation, when I say every generation, I mean, you know, the, the older peeps like myself will look at the prequels and say, oh, they're garbage. Whereas my kids would watch them and go, yeah, they're okay. I, I, I'm not going to call them garbage because mm. they're, they're fine. <laughs> they're fine. But they're not as rewatchable as first three or mm. four, five and six or certainly the newer ones. Yeah, seven and eight. I actually quite like seven and eight. I like what they, what J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson did. Um, they're very, mm, I think the unplanned nature of them is a little oh, bit. And back to film. They're shot on film. Yeah, that's what, true. So that is that is true. And um, they definitely had, they've got stuff in them that's worthy that I enjoyed. How did you go with Rogue, Rogue One? Rogue One, I liked quite a lot, and it, which is surprising really when it. you read about just how problematic the making was. Really? Like seriously difficult. But that didn't, I didn't see anything on the screen. That... Yeah. Um, they brought in Tony Gilroy, who is a screenwriter and, and director extraordinaire. But um, Tony Gilroy directed Michael Clayton with uh, George oh, Clooney. Yes. He wrote and directed, um, I'm just trying to, is it Duplicity? Uh, it was like a romantic crime comedy. And it's kind of a weird combination. It sounds interesting, and but it, it's, it's not ringing uh, a bell to it's me. Co- it's about um, two corporate spies with a romantic history. And uh, so, yeah. Well, I, I, Julia Roberts. It, it, it worked okay. I mean, it was actually quite stylishly done. But anyway, he, he's a more of a writer than anything else. Right? Yeah. And so he's responsible for the Bourne franchise. In what, in what respect? He wrote it. He the wrote movies. films. Yeah. Okay. And so he's kind of seen as a bit of a script polisher, um, and sort of a lot like Chris McQuarrie, who mm-hmm. makes the Mission Impossible films now, but he's a screenwriter primarily and wrote Usual Suspects, won the Oscar for that, does a lot of script doctoring. They bring him in at script stage and say, we need you to nut this thing out. I like the Mission Impossible work. films and I also like the, the Bourne. The, yes. They're great. I think when you when it comes to script construction, those types of stories show, if you can do them well, it shows that you've got a talent for sort of juggling elements, uh, disparate elements and sort of bringing them together. If you've got big action set pieces and um, tricky story plotting. 
and I think it shows a little bit of talent. And so that's what Tony Gilroy does, and that's also what Chris McQuarrie does. And so both of those guys get called in on different projects to sort of diagnose and look at it and see where they can actually bring their talents to bear and make things work where they weren't working. And Rogue One, which was uh, I think Gareth Edwards was the director, mm-hmm wasn't working and he literally was pushed aside in uh, I think the late stages and they brought in Tony Gilroy and he reshot a I didn't know that chunk. at all I had yeah. no idea so Tony Gilroy came in and reshot and like as director and and writer rewrote scenes and reshot stuff and a large chunk of that third act was completely reshot it was Tony Gilroy's uh, idea to uh, spoilers for Rogue One to kill the leads, he mm-hmm. and he it was his idea for everybody to die, and so the idea of it being See, like me, a dirty wh- dozen type story, yeah. where all the heroes kind of get often very dramatic and heroic ways, I believe was his idea. But to, to me, that seemed natural, the yeah. natural idea, because then they they can't pop up in four, five, and That's six. That's right. Apparently, it did not end that way, and it had an original ending that uh, had them surviving. And then they were like, hey, celebrating life day again. (laughs) (laughs) Should we celebrate, uh, go to Kashyyyk and celebrate life day with Chewie and his family? And it it just didn't work. And so it doesn't work because you needed that ending. You need that finality and the idea of sacrifice and the heroes sacrificing themselves. And I kind of loved that. But it was interesting that it took a long time. This is is the thing Lucasfilm has. I don't know the way that their story pipeline works or how they actually break stuff down and actually go into pre-production and plan their films, but it seems a little problematic because obviously if they've Solo had a problem on, on on Rogue One and mm. Solo, yeah. I mean, Kathleen Kennedy, who's the head of Lucasfilm, uh, as far as I know, runs it with a fair amount of autonomy, although mm. she is answerable to the Disney board. Um, but I think. There does seem like there was some kind of breakdown in communication. I would think so. I think having that, but then you know, Force Awakens. Mm. Wow. Yeah, J.J. Abrams is. I think because of his TV background, he knows how to get stuff done efficiently. He also did some Star Trek. He he did Star Trek. Yeah. He did the Star Trek and then Star Trek Into Darkness. Right. And then Star Trek Beyond was director. So he's in both the Star universes. Yeah. I think what he did with Star Trek was turn it into Star Wars, which did make me giggle a bit. Even as a Star Trek fan, I, I thought it was quite cute what he did. And uh, so, yeah, Rogue One significantly reshot. When I say significantly, I think like even 30%, even up to half of the film was reshot. Well, whatever they did at work, because I enjoyed it. Yeah, Gareth Edwards knew really, he he was very canny. He stood aside, stood back, and he didn't let on in the press that that had happened. He kept his mouth shut. And so he just got all the kudos. So people loved the film. They had a great reaction to the film. And he just ended up looking like a, a pretty good director. And so I think that served him well. That is the kind of, I think that's the way you do it in Hollywood, if that sort of happens. Weren't they talking a Yoda film, a Wookiee film? Yeah, they had all these ideas. They were going to do the Obi-Wan to... film, which is now turned into a series. So that'll be an okay. Obi-Wan series with Ewan McGregor on Disney+. Plus. And then uh, the Obi-Wan Is that confirmed? Films, it is confirmed. Ooh. And it's the showrunner is... Ewan McGregor? Yeah. The showrunner is <sighs> Deborah. That. Yeah, it'll be, it, I think... I think that's got a lot of potential. Yeah. The showrunner is Deborah Chow. So uh-huh. the director of episode three of Mandalorian is the showrunner for the new Obi-Wan series. Okay. Mm. And I think bodes well. Today, 
we're going to discuss two different films. And the first is one that you've picked. Um, and is this uh, is this a favourite of from your collection? Uh, it is a favourite. I've seen it numerous times. Mm. Um, fast, fierce, fantastic. Nothing can stop the man from Hong Kong. Oh, I like that tagline. <laughs> I like that logline. Well, it's it's um, George Lazenby mm-hmm. stars. You may remember him from such film as. <laughs> On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm sure he's uh, he's probably said that a few times in his life. You may remember he's... me from such film as. <laughs> and that's that's about it. That I, there's other stuff on his list, but I I haven't seen them. Mm. And the other person that it stars, Jimmy Wang Yu. Yes. And he's that uh, well-regarded Hong Kong action star. Mm. One-arm boxer, master of flying guillotine, oh, one-arm swordsman, all those. Mm. So he's a pretty big deal back in, this is 1975, this uh, just prior to me being born. Wow. Yeah. So it begins at Uluru. Mm. Undercover detectives attempt to s- arrest a drug courier, played by Sammo Hung. Mm. The cool. And he actually worked as uh, uh, the martial arts. Choreographer. A- yeah. On the film as well. He doesn't mm. get a credit for it, but that's what he apparently did. Ah. It's The opening shot is very cool because you fade up to Uluru. Yes. And then bus comes into town and there's some shady nonsense going on and mm. holding clutch bags and close-ups of the bag. And next minute the swap happens and then the, the police jump on them. Samo run, he runs. This is what you do when you're trying to evade the cops is run up Ayers Rock because you can of get course. away easily. Yeah, from, you can so you've got a, an, awesome, an awesome fight on top of Ayers Rock, mm. which I think it's the only film that's ever been given permission to film oh, wow. on it or possibly whether I read that somewhere or I'm making that up. Anyway, take it as true because I said it. I'm going to take it as true because it was probably on the internet. <laughs> yes, so. probably. Mm. But And while the fight's happening on top of Ayers Rock, mm. you've got this helicopter chasing the other dude in a car. Action, 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 action. doesn't let up. Mm. And the car explodes. You can't not. You it. can't not have an exploding So car. you've got an eight-minute dual action mm. sequence before the opening titles even, even roll. Wow. And, of course, when the titles do roll, you've got Jimmy Wang Yu firing pistols to Jigsaw, mm. Sky High. They're one hit. <laughs> They're one hit. <laughs> I, listened, I was reading about it. Apparently it cost them 50 grand to get that song for the movie. Sometimes you've, you've just got to shell out to get that. Well, I think that's why the budget went over because it was originally f- 450, 490 and it went to 550,000 or something, depending on what you read, which is a lot of money for 1975. Mm. But um, they do finally capture Samo. And he won't talk. He refuses to talk. So they say, we'll, we'll, we'll fly someone in from Hong Kong if you, mm. if you refuse to talk. And then Jimmy Wang Yu comes in and dispenses with his uh, form of justice, which is just beating the crap out of everyone that he comes across. Other than the ladies. He does, he does get to bed down with a couple of ladies. He does, yeah. He, he's a bit of a hit with the ladies. From the studios of Golden Harvest comes a new high in spring. Stand by for action in The Man from Hong Kong. Take the wildest ride of your life when The Man from Hong Kong takes on the mob down under. See Jimmy Wang Yu as the tough Hong Kong cop who learned every trick in the book, then threw the book away. See 
The most dangerous and exciting kung fu scenes ever filmed. See George Lazenby as Australia's ruthless king of crime. See the man from Hong Kong exploding on this screen soon. Uh, that's the one thing that struck me is you realize just how fantastic the action is. Like, it's just, it kind of never lets up. I watched it earlier mm. knowing that I was going to be talking about it today. Mm. And you've got this couple of montages, these horsebacking, horseback riding montage, which mm. is really lame, but that leads to sex. So, you yeah. know, that's what that's for. Yeah. But the action is nonstop. Like the, the, the car chase at the end mm. is nearly 10 minutes long. Just this whole sequence of cool, you know, bumping each other off the road. And it's, it's one car blows up three times. (laughs) I thought that was amazing. I guess once, twice, and then a third explosion. That is the sign of a truly great film when you can actually get that much value out of one car. Yes. Yeah. But it was funny. I was reading, because it's in the trailer, they said, Mm. you know, see George Lazenby is the, David Stratton uh, said here, he was unearthed to play the villain. He was inadequate as Mr. Big, as he had been as Sean Connery's replacement, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was very David Stratton. like. Oh, poor old George. Inadequate is not a, not a great term for any actor, but you don't want to hear that. No, I I actually, I actually quite liked him in the role. I, I, he, he does, he was extremely arch and, you know he's very over the top, but I I did I did enjoy him in that part. And when he once when he gets into the kung fu, he, he is so he, he is so utterly unsuited for that type of uh, fighting. <laughs> <laughs> he's so I was wondering so where you're going. I agree. Gangly. <laughs> it's just watching him do kung fu moves. It's so funny to watch, but. Uh, it, he's so committed as a sort of evil dude. He's he so is, he bad. Is, he isn't a he isn't a bad bad guy. He, he does enjoyable. it quite well. I I enjoyed the other bit because um, he catches fire at one point. Yes, and um, <laughs> he actually really did burn himself. And you watch when you know this afterwards. When you watch mm. it back and watch the scene where he's trying to get the jack because they left that take in. Mm. That's the take in the movie where he burnt his arm <laughs> in the hand or something. Reportedly, after they called cut, he walked yeah. up and punched. Brian Trenchard Smith. Oh, wow. Just read that. Whether it's true, I don't know. I, I think we should remove the word reportedly and just say <laughs> it actually happened. It's he true. did. He, it's true. He punched Brian Trenchard Smith in the face um, and threatened his family. I've just added that, but that sounds a lot more dramatic. But, you know, he, he apparently set on fire some other person to show that this is what's going to happen. Mm. And then that's not quite what happened. I am also quite intrigued by the supporting cast because this film does have a terrific supporting cast. And as a big fan of uh, Mad Max, yes. I love the fact that this film features Hugh Keys Burn. And he's good. And he's good. Yeah, he's good. And he's good. Uh, AKA the toe cutter yeah. from Mad Max. And also Roger Ward from Mad Max. It's good cast because, in fact, Roger Ward is, I think, the guy that has the fight with Samo at the start on the. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I believe in this film he has hair. Of course, in Mad Max, he's completely bald and yep. uh, plays uh, Max Rokotansky's uh, superior at the MFP, Main Force Patrol. Oh, 
Frank uh, Thring is in there as well. Frank Thring. Now, Frank Thring, I'm fascinated by because he became a bit of a personality as he got older. Um, in, in, you know, you'd see him pop up on different shows, variety shows, midday show yep. or whatever. He'd be in interviews and uh, he, he's just so eccentric as a person. But he was in Ben-Hur. In fact, I think he had quite, he's had quite a storied career. The Charlton Heston Ben-Hur? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Frank Thring got around, um, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. Uh, just as a performer, as an actor, because he had roles in Ben-Hur and in King of Kings. Okay. In 1961, the the uh, big biblical epic. He's been around for a while before he even came to yeah to the man from Hong Kong. Um, yeah, which I'm sure it was a career highlight. Would be for me. Yeah. Look, you know, uh, maybe that maybe at that point he was kind of you know slumming it, but um, I don't know. Well, he was in in Howling Three, I think. Uh, he... so that may have been slumming it. Howling. <laughs> um. Yeah. El Cid. He was also in El Cid. Wow. Yeah. That's actually not a bad. I mean, look. If you're if you're a uh, just a jobbing actor and you can get roles in uh, you know King of Kings, El Cid, Ben Hur, that's pretty good. Uh, Mad Dog Morgan also. Well, that's sitting that's, here in my pile. So, Man from Hong Kong is an Australian Hong Kong. It's the first uh, co-production, in fact, between yeah. those two countries. And it's Raymond Chow, right? Yeah, he was one yeah. of the producers. And uh, you can't knock Raymond Chow because he was the one that had Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee. You see the Golden Harvest logo in any of those mm-hmm. early cool 70s Hong Kong action films. You, were, you, you know you're in for some, some quality. I think... Um, John Fraser was the producer, Australian producer, and uh, yeah. that was I think they were the two that sort of they collaborated and, and I think Greater Union had something to do with it. I think Brian Trenchard Smith and Greater Union formed another the movie company or something mm. as well because there'd be different prints because the Hong Kong print mm. lists Jimmy Wang Yu as one of the directors <laughs> and you was won't fight you. Well, yes, and I think it caused some on-set uh, uh, tensions. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. because he thought he was directing, but. Brian Trenchard Smith was actually directing, yes. and there's, I think, um, well, in the uh, documentary, not quite Hollywood. I think they talked about Jimmy Wang Yu being quite a difficult person to work with, um, and he was a bit disrespectful towards his leading ladies. Uh, I believe one of them was at Rosalind or Ros Spears. Yep. Um, the other one was um, Rebecca Gilling. Oh, yeah, wow. that's the one with the horseback montage. That was the one with the horseback <laughs> montage. Out of nowhere, suddenly, okay. Well, I think um, they they kind of were subjected to some some awful scripting. Um, I mean, there are some just uh, the dialogue is do, quite appalling in part yeah, places. In fact, uh, yeah, we've got a clip here from this is oh, actually yeah. plucked out of the trailer, but it's a good example. Tell me, Inspector, do you often take white girls to bed? <laughs> Only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> Good idea. Mm, this is nice. What did you expect? Acupuncture? <laughs> now... <laughs> I'm not. Just, I'm just not saying anything, just yeah. in case I get myself into trouble. Because uh, the original, t- this had a very different title. This film, <laughs> really? Yeah. It. 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 Brian Trenchard Smith talks about it in one of those. Uh, what are they called? The, Trailers uh, from Hell. That he talked about it. I think. 
So I've got Brian Trenchard Smith. Uh, this is from Trailers from Hell. Uh, you'll hear him talking about the production of The Man from Hong Kong. Here we go. I was always amused by the crypto-fascist superhero causing extensive property damage, not to mention loss of life, in his quest for justice. So what if Dirty Harry came to Sydney on a routine extradition and wrecked the place by going after a Bond-style villain? What if the villain was played by former James Bond George Lazenby? What if the hero was Chinese and the Australian characters reacted to his activities with typical Asian stereotypes? That would be an interesting genre cocktail, I thought. Shaken, not stirred, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yes. And it is about the meeting of two cultures. That is kind of an undercurrent in the film. So the idea that he would meet this sort of racist, like not casual racism, but pointed racism, yeah. and also you know racist slurs and attitudinal uh, Australians not liking an outsider or a foreigner. And I guess that kind of adds to it as well. And the other aspect that I really dug is I, I, I just love a little bit of historical value in films. I like to see Sydney from the 70s. And you Doesn't it look it, good? Because that's that was the next brilliant. thing I was going to say, this, that chase. The foot so chase in there's Paddington. A, there's an assassination yes. at the court and then yeah. a chase ensues. And my God, it's good because the 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 cars the mm. traffic yeah. all these wonderful old cars from, and onlookers who clearly have no idea what's <laughs> yeah. going on yeah. just watching the the scene unfold in front of them yeah and uh, there are some great uh, stunt set pieces and grant page is probably worth yeah. a mention yeah. here because he really is um, a stuntman extraordinaire. And when it comes to the sort of films of the 70s, like the, the 10BA films yep. that were made in Australia under that 10BA tax code, the guy is a magician. This is worth getting your hands on if you, mm. if you can still because they've got themselves an exclusive 4K transfer. Now, I think the transfer is from the restore that National Film and Sound Archive oh, did. Okay. So it's part of that collection, but yeah. they've got a new transfer and this the audio commentary you've got the original mm. mono track you got the 5.1 remix soundtrack mm. and one two three four five other brian trenchard smith films on here as extras films yeah so there are either his docos or some early wow films they're in just sd but still that's terrific so the other thing I want to mention about Man from Hong Kong before we turn to your mm. film of today is cinematographer Russell Boyd. Russell Boyd. Now, Russell Boyd is a significantly accomplished Aussie cinematographer. He's up there with John Seal and Dean Semler. Australia's well, produced quite yeah, a few. And John Seal did some additional photography on this. Ah. Who shot Dances with Wolves. Dean Semler. Okay. Well, yeah, he won the Oscar for Dances with Wolves. Well, Russell Boyd eventually won an Oscar as well for Master and Commander. Mm. Oh, man. Master and Commander is like one of the most underrated. I think it's underrated. It's a well-known film, but I don't think people give it nearly the amount of props it's it's due. Like, I'll add it to the list then. Oh, Master and <laughs> Commander is great. Peter Weir is... Let's not even get onto that because we'll get we'll get really distracted. And next thing you know, yep. I'll, be, I'll be waffling on. But I think... Definitely Russell Boyd's the reason this film looks so great. And that is one of the things that strikes you. Like the stunts are well shot. And the film oh, it's all very, very engaging because you can, like the hang gliding scenes, you've got the this hang glider flying over mm. this. And again, because you're looking at 1970, it's late 1974 Hong Kong. Yes. So there's still develop. You look at it now. That's so like, it's very different. So remarkably different. It, uh, that's what I love is that, that there's a lot of things in it that are really, I mean, one, the action is fantastic. 
it, it actually kicks ass. The, stu- the stunts and set pieces are really well executed. And a cool, funky score. Cool, funky score. Yeah. Cinematography is fantastic. And it's got this, it's like a little time capsule. It just sort of crystallizes the Australiana at that time. And it's fun and it's, yeah, it's very silly as well. And it's but that's tone. part, that's its charm. It's yeah, it it completely silly. You have to laugh, otherwise you're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, well, basically. And the one last thing, because yes. I'm an editor, I need to give the editor on mm. this some credit. I don't remember his name. Ron Inter- Williams and Peter Chung are yeah. two editors, but yeah. Whether or not they're listed. The interrogation, Jimmy Wang used doing his yes. slapping around of... <laughs> There's that as slapping you, around, cops slapping yes. people around is always um, fun. But he he kicks the other guy in the nuts and <laughs> then we cut to a pool table and the billiard balls being broken mm. from the initial oh, setup. So yep, you've yep. got the, uh, I thought that's a good edit. That's like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. literally his balls have shattered. Yeah, yeah, his balls have shattered. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's also, yeah, I love that kind of, uh, you know, it's a horror movie and you'll see a knife flying through the air and it's heading towards somebody and then yep. you're, you're cut and then you get like a splat of tomato sauce on a plate or something. <laughs> I love those kinds of edits. That It's a very, it's very, it's very amusing. It's like a, a, a 70s Italian horror film. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. Not exactly artful, but definitely enjoyable. Yes. I think that kind of sums up Man from Hong Kong. Now, the other film that I want to discuss today is a lurch in almost 180 degrees opposite direction and that is oliver stone's film born on the fourth of july now oliver stone well he's an interesting creature because his films i think of recent years are nowhere near as incendiary and zealous as those films that he made the start of his career but i definitely think born the fourth of july is a good example of the polemic that he kind of perfected in the style and tone of what he was trying to talk about yeah Born the Foot July, of course, is Tom Cruise. And at the time he used Tom Cruise, uh, I guess you could say, uh, subverting what he did in Top Gun. In fact, I think Born on the Fourth of July is almost the anti-Top Gun. But, you know, it's it's essentially the story of Ron Kovic, who is a young idealistic boy in small-town America, um, Massapequa, New York, in the uh, in the early or late 50s, early 60s. And then the film begins with this 10-year-old boy and his friends playing in a forest, playing war. And uh, he attends an Independence Day parade with his family and his best friends. But in 1961, it's John F. Kennedy's televised inaugural address inspires this young Ron Kovic to join the United States Marine Corps. Now, I think what really attracts me to this film in terms of what I think Oliver Stone is doing is that it addresses the mid-century idea of what it means to quote-unquote be a man. So what is manhood and what is masculinity exactly and what are the attributes that are prized above all else? And you know, there's a sequence in it where it features Tom Berenger. And uh, it's a very meta sequence because Tom Berenger obviously plays Barnes, who is the uh, antagonist in the film Platoon. And uh, in this, he plays a different character. He plays a Marine recruiter. But he's standing at the front of the school auditorium and a very young Ron Kovic, played by Tom Cruise, looking very young and boyish at the time. It's 1989 the film came out? I believe it is 89, yes. And yeah. 
Uh, it's based on a 1976 autobiography by yeah. Ron Kovic. But in the film, this young Ron Kovic is watching this Marine recruiter uh, sort of appealing to their idealism and their sense of, again, their sense of, of, of manhood or what their expectations are of themselves, these these young men, young well, young boys. Mm. And he talks about, you know, we need the best, you know, appealing to this 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 very vague sense of masculinity or what it means to be a man in America to fight a war and and also I think what fascinates me about the Ron Kovic character that Tom Cruise plays um, again the angle I take on this is that I really do not I mean I think Tom Cruise is a great actor but I don't think he gets nearly enough kudos for what he does in this film and that is he really does demonstrate quite dramatically in this character what it means to have these idealistic, aspirational views on on masculinity and manhood, and what it means to be a and wanting to be a soldier and claim his birthright. There were all these very dramatic concepts that were really drummed into young people at that time, and I guess there's a lot of things that are responsible for that, but you know, definitely movies. I've actually got a clip of Ron Kovic being interviewed on a chat show, and this is in the late 70s, but here he is talking about what actually compelled him to join the Marine Corps. And uh, I guess you could say I was an all-American boy. I love this country. I believe in what John Wayne said, and uh, Howdy Doody, Rudy Kazooty, Sergeant York. I was a child of the 50s. Uh, I can remember, uh, remember John F. Kennedy? Yeah, of course. Asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I believe that, Bill. And uh, I believed in America, and I believed that what we were doing in Vietnam was right. And I went, like millions of other young when men. When did you first go, Ron? What, what year did you enlist? Uh, 1964, September, I joined uh, the United States Marine Corps because the uh, ad down at the post office said, uh, the Marine Corps builds men body, mind, and spirit, and uh, I wanted to be a man, and I wanted Plus, to Plus, you were a pretty country. tough guy. I mean, you were a very you were an athlete, you were a star I wrestler, the, uh, you I were... I was the best uh, pole vaulter at Massapequa High School. I was, uh, I was a real good wrestler, too. That's Ron Kovic himself talking about his own reasons for joining up and signing up in the Army, but uh, in the Marine Corps, I should say. And so... This film does follow the young Ron as he signs up and he, he joins the Marine Corps. He goes to Vietnam and over there he is shot and injured and he is uh, made a paraplegic. What it means to be a man, what it, what manhood and masculinity are exactly, and the attributes that are prized, you know, the physicality, which is demonstrated in early scenes in the film with Tom Cruise wrestling. And you hear Ron Kovic himself there talking about how he was a star wrestler and this physicality and violence, domination and victory and sport, you know, and also sexuality. And, you know, in the film, it has a girlfriend played by Kira Sedgwick. Yep. And all of that is taken away. And so there's this really overt deconstruction, I think, of, of US iconography and this idealized view of of the country as a force for greatness and justice in the world. And then when he returns home, these real world reactions are for the returned veterans of Vietnam, that, that they're unwanted, that it's just this lingering war that's going on and on. And the US is having to deal with failure and loss. And in a way that it's kind of mirrored because it's Ron Kovrick's having to deal with uh, Tom Cruise as Ron Kovic, having to deal with failure and loss and really in his performance, I have not seen Tom Cruise better than he is in this film. I really think there's something that Stone Oliver Stone got out of him in sort of restraining that kind of manic energy that we that we kind of see a lot now. Yeah. 
because he's a star and he kind of has his way when it comes to the sorts of films that he does and the sorts of roles he plays. Mission Impossible films. Yeah, Mission Impossible yeah. films or Oblivion. or they, These are all films I really enjoy. I mean, I actually don't think I've ever seen him be bad in a film. I've seen films of his that I didn't enjoy. He always gives his all and he does have tremendous focus as as an actor, but there is a manic energy about him. No, I know, and, what, you, I know what you're saying. And in this film... Oliver Stone really sat on him in a way and it kind of restrains it. Right. You, you tell her, Dad! Tell her! It's a lie! It's a fucking lie! There's no God! God is as dead as my legs! There's no God! There's no country! It's just me in his fucking wheelchair for the rest of my life. For nothing mean. It's, it's, it's quite heartbreaking in a way that that somebody who's built up their entire life based on these kind of pre- preconceptions about what he was really aspiring to, about what it means to be a man in America at that time and, and to be a soldier and to fight. And a lot of the, and all that idealism is based on essentially lies. There's a section of the film where Kovic disappears down to Mexico. He tries to discover exactly who he is now, the man in a wheelchair. But what sort of person is he going to be? And ultimately, he does become quite a zealous anti-war protester. But, you know, Oliver Stone, I think in this film, is calling bullshit on on jingoistic romanticism. And the way it's deployed, I think, to hasten the ramping up of war rhetoric and... uh, we see its effect on the young Ron. And look, how masculinity is defined by external things like books and films and, and also how his parents contribute to that in telling him what they believe God wants for his life. His very religious parents, it's very middle America. Um, and Stone really illustrates, I think, quite well how that kind of shapes who somebody is. And I know that well, obviously Oliver Stone is quite well known. He went to Vietnam himself. Oliver Stone signed up. He, did, he wasn't conscripted. He came from a wealthy family. He himself experienced that sort of disillusionment. And it's Cruz's physicality in this role that manic energy that isn't really present here, but, you know, and Stone elicits that different side of Cruz. I think Stone is taking apart and unpacking that mid-century perspective on masculinity and manliness. And so the whole movie is really about the stories we tell ourselves to justify our actions and to sort of live with them and the elaborate stories we use to justify our decisions in life and what happens when we're presented with an outcome that's simply not what we planned or foresaw. I wanted to be a good American. I wanted to serve my country. I couldn't wait to fight my first war. We can, we can! First off, young men, let's get one thing straight. There is nothing prouder as a United States Marine. Our dad's got to go to WW2. This is our chance to do something. You should think about what you're doing. You could get yourself killed. Did you ever think about that? Help me, Jesus. Help me to make the right decision. Sometimes I just like to stay here and never leave. But I gotta go. 13,000 miles is a long way to go to fight a war. Don't you know what it means to me to be a Marine, Dad? Ever since I was a kid, I've wanted this. I wanted to serve my country. 
I want to go to Vietnam. I'll die there if I have to. The narrative is something I think that's really relevant today. And a filmmaker like Oliver Stone is interesting to me because he's positioned perfectly to tell this kind of story. He understands war. He understands the fetishization of the military. And he's articulated that quite well and in interviews uh, many times, in fact. Um, well, when you've got first-hand knowledge... Yeah, yeah. You know, he understands the reality of. It. He understands what it means to to kill and to be a soldier, and he sees the reality in a different way than people like us who have grown up on on movies about war and books about war, but we've never really experienced it. So, as a culture, and I think this is Australia, and it's def- it's the U.S. It's in the West, absolutely, because we've never had to live with bombs being dropped on us. Yeah. But we we idealize and fetishize the military. We fetishize what they do, and we fet- and what war actually is. We create these unrealistic fantasies about what it means to fight for our country, quote unquote. But what what does that actually mean? Because ultimately, that is just a narrative that we sort of apply to this idea of war, and um, and maybe in order for us to process it or to live with it. But, you know, when I say to fetishize the military, okay, watch a, watch a Transformers film. And then after that, after you've watched it, mm. tell me that is Michael Bay fetishizing war? Yes, he fetishizes the hardware of war. He fetishizes, and many other action directors do this. And it's something I'm really aware of. And now I say that liking action films i like war films but i'm very aware that in the depiction of war in war films we emphasize these archetypal framework we're not interested in really getting down to the nitty-gritty of it's a perspective uh, that's sort of potent and romantic and it has real power you know the sacrifice honor courage bravery And these are concepts that we really respond to when they're in a story and when they're in a film or in the the book. You know, I was always interested in when people, when we were in Iraq, the sequel, not the original Gulf War. In 2003, I remember reading soldiers' um, descriptions of battles and they used films to convey it. So they'd say it was like a scene from Apocalypse Now. It was like a scene from Platoon. It was like, and it's really weird to me that that is even the context in, w- in which they try to frame this experience. But yeah, war is an interesting thing in the way that um, we as a society deal with it. You just mentioned sacrifice and honor. And that's the kind of another thing about Born on the Fourth of July is he mm. comes back yes. and he has sacrificed and he's fought with honor yeah. and then is f- essentially forgotten. Yeah. That's a struggle. It's a it's a huge struggle, and I I one thing that um, really moves me about this film is uh, Raymond J. Barry, who is a terrific character actor, and he's phenomenal in this film playing Ron Kovic's dad. And there's a sequence where Ron comes home, and his father's showing him the modifications he's made to the house oh. to accommodate his wheelchair. Yeah, and you know doors have been widened, and a ramp's been put in, and there's just this moment where his dad kind of breaks and doesn't say anything he just kind of he gives he gives his son he sort of bends over in this awkward angle and gives him this um embrace like i'm glad you're home son kind of you know and he's just unable to express his emotions with any kind of directness so he's just he's just sort of words words won't suffice words won't suffice but it's a really understated beautiful performance 
none of what I've said is to say that Oliver Stone isn't a bombastic filmmaker because he he will oh he'll bang you over the head with certain things yes, absolutely he'll smash you over the head with a sledgehammer to get his point across and you know yeah he's got an over the top intensity but I think it, born in the Fourth of July is the <laughs> middle of because he did uh, Platoon. Yes. This one and Heaven on Earth. Heaven and Earth, which is often and forgotten Earth, yeah. um, and is def- is from the perspective of a Vietnamese woman who survives the Vietnam War. It's it's quite a terrific film um, and falls in love with Tommy Lee Jones's soldier character and returns to America with um, with him. And it's about... And this, we like Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, we love Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. He's awesome in that film and um, plays a very broken, again, a very broken soldier dealing with PTSD and... That is a sort of a trilogy. Those three films, Platoon, Born the Fourth of July, and Heaven and Earth, I think are, are, are really great examples of uh, what Oliver Stone was up to in that early phase of his career. I mean, let's not forget Wall Street or Salvador, which is also personal. And Talk favorite. Radio is in there as well. Talk Radio is a terrific film. And if anyone hasn't seen that, get on it. Eric Bogosian playing a Talk Radio shock jock. It's such a great little piece for Tom Cruise, who I think people don't give enough credit for as a uh, as a dramatic actor. Because bear in mind, he did this and Rain Man in the same year, and up till this point, he was Tom Cruise from Top Gun, Tom Cruise from Days of Thunder, um, risky business, risky business. People didn't really take him seriously or give him enough kudos for um, being a dramatic actor, or at least having the dramatic chops to pull this off. And I know. That apparently even Oliver Stone himself kind of scoffed at the idea of Tom Cruise playing it. But even now, when you look at it uh, 30 years later, it's sort of got this beautiful poetry to it that he did Top Gun and then followed it up with this film uh, that is so... And antithetical to everything that Top Gun was about. And Top Gun's an ad to join the Navy. Yeah. It's a recruitment commercial. Yeah. Yeah. And this film is this just absolutely left field choice for Tom Cruise. I I don't want to sound like, because I think Mm. Top Gun is fun. I I like Top Gun. (laughs) Well, that would lead us to a conversation about Tony Scott. I mean, he did direct the best film that Tarantino never made, and that was True Romance. And And I watched that again only in the last three months. Mm. And it's great. It stands up so well. Yeah, I know. It's a terrific. Brad Pitt is in that, and he's... (laughs) Freaking awesome. Brad Pitt's stoner yeah. is terrific. And uh, James Gandolfini is terrific in it. Patricia Arquette is terrific in it. Val Kilmer as the unseen Elvis. Elvis. Um, Gary Oldman as Drexel, the pimp. Uh, you've got so many. Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper. Christopher That's... Walken. Uh, that is, oh, those, yeah, those two together. Those two together. That is one of the great scenes, yeah. I think, that Tarantino has written. Yeah, so look, Born the Fourth of July, I find to be this really moving, interesting middle bridge, if you want to call it that, in in Stone's trilogy about Vietnam, which I think is... I haven't seen Heaven and Earth. Heaven and Earth is an interesting film. It's very different. Um, Again, it's shot beautifully. Robert Richardson shot that. Mm. Um, Stone's kind of overall message about the dangers of fetishizing the military. And I think that just shows Stone's own disillusionment with that and his own feelings on that. And I think that's what makes this a powerful film because Stone is, and that is what appeals to me most about his sort of polemics like this, is he is a 
powerful filmmaker and reminds me a lot of uh, Sam Fuller, who I mentioned in our previous yep. podcast and this uh, being a veteran and being a filmmaker. And when you get on a topic that you really have something to say and it means something so deeply to you, uh, I think it, it just comes across in the final product. I know Cruz emphasized heavily that the film needed an upbeat ending and it does finish at the Demo- Democratic National Convention with Ron Kovic giving a speech and that ending was reshot and I know it was tacked on at the end after screenings, n- numerous test screenings. So it had quite a downbeat ending. Um, Tom Cruise is very involved with the structures of his films. Like in, in well, the Did he serve phase. as producer on this? Because he often do that um, now. I don't believe he was a producer, right. but I know that um, he and the studio were very, very forceful with Oliver Stone and saying, you need an ending that caps this film off on a positive note. And at the time, uh, Stones talked about the fact that at the time, he I think he hated that and he hated being sort of forced to reshoot that and, and do that scene, but now sees it as actually being right Mm-hmm. And he thinks Tom Tom Cruise made the right decision and pushed for the right. So he doesn't have final cut. I think you can have final cut, but if the studio tells you that they want an ending that you're not providing, you just have to give it to them wow. because they're the ones that are releasing it and paying for it. I wanted to talk about this film because I think that even in Australian society today, that the ideas that this film expresses about fetishizing military and idealizing the military and this concept that you don't have a valid viewpoint about this topic unless you've been a soldier. It's kind of ironic because obviously Oliver Stone is articulating all these ideas but if he wasn't a veteran, would we take them as seriously? Mm. And that's, I think, the power that he adds and the weight that he adds to these kinds of stories is that he speaks from his own experience as well. And that is kind of what appeals to me about Oliver Stone, when, at least in his war films. Thank you for joining me on this excursion or descent into filmic craziness, Damo. Thank you, Jared. I'll talk to you again soon. See you soon. Goodbye, everybody.